0: $50 off your device. That's SoberLink.com forward slash T A M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. We are on to episode 117. My name is Dwayne Osterlund and I'm your host. And today we have an awesome guest, Dr. Claudia Black. She is a world renowned expert on addiction and codependency. And she just released in December, the third edition of her internationally best-selling book, It Will Never Happen to Me, Growing Up with Addiction as Youngsters, Adolescents, and Adults. Now, I was so excited to have Claudia on the podcast because personally, to me, she has had a huge impact on my own recovery and growth by her work around family rules and rules and making that explicit. So I was super excited to have her on the podcast and to be honest, a little bit nervous too, um, because uh, I really look up to her work. So as you can probably hear in the podcast episode, but I think it's really super helpful and she just brings her unique spirit and humanity to this episode. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you get a lot out of it. And I would definitely recommend her book. It will never happen to me. I think it's a great, great book and it really is a good starting place when you're in recovery. Also, Don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or rate and review us in iTunes. I really appreciate that. And that really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure. All right, let's start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a great guest today, Dr. Claudia Black, and I am so excited to have you on the show because your work has been very personal to me. in and in my journey of recovery so claudia please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about you and and we'll get into your book and everything like that so i'm really excited today
1: (laughs) thank you duane well a little bit about me i um i've been working in the field of addictive disorders for over 40 years and it's no surprise to anybody but obviously obviously i would have a personal interest and i grew up in an alcoholic home And as a little kid in a small little logging community up in Washington State, my parents owned the only bar in that town. And so we were really the hub of the community. But unfortunately, that also meant that we were exposed to a lot of alcoholism, not just my father's alcoholism, but within the community as well. And, you know, with growing up with the disease of addiction, substance use disorders in particular, it was really a lot of fear that permeated our life. And I think that's fear that permeates the lives of so many people growing up in homes like this. And ultimately, I think that as children, we internalize a lot of what I call toxic shame. Somehow we we lose the ability to believe in our own worth and value. And for some people it's never even instilled to begin with. And so, and My father was alcoholic. My mother was raised in an addictive home with gambling and alcoholism. That's a typical scenario of a person who marries somebody who's addicted. And at the same time, I loved my dad. And it was for my father, in spite of his alcoholism, uh, he was the one who could tell me that he loved me. And he was the one who would give me appropriate affectionate touch in the family. And so it was very confusing for me when he became actually very... um, angry. He became very angry. He became very violent. But somewhere I had the ability to separate out his behavior from who he was. And I used to love to go sit in uh, in the bar stools at the tavern next to right, all the people who right. were sitting for hours drinking compulsively. And, and I liked those people too. And so for me as a little kid, as much as there was a lot of fear growing up and a lot of sadness growing up, There was this dichotomy of somehow what was happening wasn't what was supposed to happen. And I think that would be critical in terms of my ability to move into the field, the treatment field, and feel a sense of compassion without having been a recovering substance use disorder person myself. And. I believe that nobody deserves to live with the fear and shame that permeates these homes. I don't think children deserve that. I don't think the partners deserve that. Certainly the addicted person doesn't deserve that. And it's been that belief that has driven me for all my 40 plus years. And it's that belief that really drove me to write, initially write, It Will Never Happen to Me.
0: Right. That's what I was going to ask you. How did this book, because this is, this book, it's, had over 2 million copies in print. To me, it's a fundamental part of recovery treatment and laid a big foundation in the, in the recovery community. So how did the book come to be?
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting for me, you know, I was a very young social worker and, and at that time, there were no adult children meetings, um, self-help meetings to go to. People didn't know the phrase adult child. And yet, as I said, I came into the field, and I think it was a God thing, to be really honest, because I was working with very angry adolescent girls in residential treatment setting, and I absolutely loved it. Um, But after graduate school, the first job I ever took was in an addiction treatment program. And I did that uh, when I had good group experience. I I really believe in residential inpatient treatment, and that allowed me to go into an addiction uh, treatment program. And there... I was asked as a social worker to develop a family program, and I thought families meant children, and that they didn't. All they really meant was bring the wives of the men who were alcoholic. And I say that because back then in the 70s, it was mostly men who went to treatment. We saw everything through heterosexual view. So it was the wives of these men right, who right supposed to be doing treatment with. But I was so young and naive, I brought the kids in. So, I had these young kids, I had teenage kids, and then I had these adult age kids, and I didn't know what to call them. So, I called them my adult children. But I believe that if you were raised with addiction, I didn't care how old you were, that you deserved to be acknowledged. And we needed, I needed to give you a voice for what that experience was. But I began to compare what I was seeing with the young teenage and adult child to who the spouse was, the partner was, and then to the addict. And I saw all this emotional connection. It wasn't different. And I found that I could identify so much with the spouses, partners, and the addict without having to have gone down that path. And nobody had written about this. Nobody was talking about this. We were breaking what I call the dysfunctional family rules, talking about something that had just been kept such a secret. And I had somebody in my life who said, you need to talk about this, and you need to write about this, because people do not know. And I, I did. And I quickly got some national attention. A Donahue show, for those who are older, can remember one of the very right. first shows. Right, I remember shows. Donahue. Newsweek magazine, did a whole piece on my work. And it was really a breaking, I think today we so commonly talk, you see it in movie scripts, you see it in, you know, your fiction books, people using the word addiction and alcoholism and codependency, but that didn't happen back then. So what I was doing was truly a a revelation that had never occurred before to people.
0: It was, to to me, I look at it, it was like this uh, voice pointing out something that was there but no one knew how to see. I don't know if that makes sense, but the, and, and that the was what was so wonderful. Room. Yeah. The elephant in the living room. I think that was what was so wonderful about it because your work really gave a voice to the suffering that people didn't know how to name.
1: I think it gave a validation. I think you're exactly right. It gave a voice to the suffering It gave a validation and it also gave them a language to talk about their experience they didn't know how to talk about that experience. You know, what was true yesterday isn't what's true today in that addicted home. What was true three minutes ago isn't what's true now. And then you had, you know, the injunctions that, you know, what goes on in this family stays in this family. So it gave validation. It gave that voice and it gave a language.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it, and it gave us... um words to put to the systems approach that I think at the time my guess wasn't really there
1: no it wasn't there and you know one of the things I always say today is that in treatment we're not working with just the person who comes to treatment that truly the family is the client Um, because generationally this will repeat itself if we don't work with it systematically but it certainly can begin with that individual Yeah. And a lot of families begin that recovery process because some one person seeks recovery, and it might be the adult child, uh, could be the partner, it may very well be the addicted person. Also, going to say, I'm a real believer that one person can ultimately truly make a difference. There were people who said to me, Claudia, there's no research behind your work. Well, I knew there wasn't any research yet behind my work, but was I going to wait 10, 15 years for the research to support what it was I was seeing? And so somehow there was a piece of courage in me that just like, we'll do the research. But in the meantime, we need to really empower those who are being affected in such a way.
0: I'm really curious about that because your your work and this work is so part of the culture now, but back then it really wasn't. And I would love to know what it was like to put this work out there and challenge in a way, the status quo of treatment at the time, back in the late seventies and stuff.
1: It was so interesting. I mean, I'm I'm so much older today and um, it was, uh, I don't know where that courage came from because I had a lot of fear (laughs) in me that had been in for me, but you know, it was, I mean, we were talking, I was talking about physical and sexual abuse on national television shows, and nobody had said those words out loud. I had children with me that I really worked with that could talk about what it was like, seven, eight, 19-year-old children talking about growing up with addiction. I mean, from the, the mouth of babes. And, and again, I don't think today people understand, you know, just how far we've come in a relatively short period of time that you couldn't even talk about those things. And there was there was backlash. There was backlash from some parts of the addiction treatment field as if I was blaming the addicted person. Right. I think that for me, I trusted my gut and I tr- I felt I knew who I was, which isn't true for some of us adult children. But, you know, I had some strengths and we all do. And one of those is I knew that I wasn't blaming the addicted person. I mean, I, as I said earlier, I loved my dad and I had the ability to separate the disease from who he was. And so when people would say you're blaming the parents, no, I'm not blaming the parents. A part of owning your reality and your truth is that child who grew up in that home is a part of the process, but it's not ever meant to blame It's a part of the grief process. And so the other thing that was happening is oftentimes academicians wanted to go back and just attach what I was saying to other basic psychiatric or psychological models. And and then what was when they would do that, they were losing the emotional essence of the emotional experience of this child. This wasn't just sort of an academic discussion. Yes, there is attachment disruption and we can put this in the context of attachment theory. This is just an example, but what this movement did. And I think what my work initially did is it gave voice to the individual to be able to speak to what they needed versus to be in a one down position with a therapist or a one down position with the physician or the academician. And uh, so for me, there were also so many I mean, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of letters that were pouring in, thanking me for my work and people sharing their stories in 10, 12 pages, you know, pouring their hearts out. And I found more strength in that than I did the people that wanted to sort of slap this down.
0: Yeah, definitely. I I can totally hear that.
1: Yeah. The biggest part was people saying that I was blaming and I was never blaming. You know, I think in time there became a backlash because uh, the word codependency became so generalized, it started to minimize the real essence of our work. Then in time, people started to say, well, 97% of all families are dysfunctional. And, you know, I don't think that's true. But you know, maybe seven or eight years after my work, this backlash came. And I think it's, as I said, because there became far too many generalizations. You know, isn't this just true for everybody? Well, in bits and pieces, you know, there can be some level of impairment in all families. But I'm not saying that all families are sick. I don't think that everybody raised in any family system all needs to do family of origin therapy work. That right. I kept my focus on children of addiction because the addiction in the family would be ignored by everybody else if they could ignore it. And I just felt so strongly we needed to keep the word addiction in there to make sure children of addiction were acknowledged and had resources available to them.
0: It sounds like your gut really spoke to you that you had enough experience of this addiction to be able to see it. And then, like you said, your courage gave it voice and, when we acknowledge it, it's, it it is so validating. Sometimes even when I'm sharing, you know, the family roles with, with clients or the family rules, and there is this moment of recognition that comes across. I I mean, I know I had it when I finally, like someone laid that out to me and you could see it and you can go, oh my gosh, that that's exactly what's happening. No one said that before. I didn't even realize I was in it. And I still use that with clients today. And, and it's just, it's so incredibly powerful for people to be able to see that.
1: Yes. And, you know, I think that one of the values is, I mean, this is a human truth and the message in the book and why I can still have a new edition and come out still today and be a value is the issues are ageless, Yes. What is experienced in this kind of home is the same experience. There may be different drugs that are being used. It may be a process addiction. We understand more about it. We're more sophisticated in our treatment, but the experience for the person really doesn't change.
0: Right. Yeah. And and being able to have it validated, it's just incredibly a big part of the healing process.
1: And you know, for me, you know, this material is sort of old hat, I call it. And, um, you know, I've known it for a long period of time. But as you say, when you use it with a client, it's not old hat. know, Again, it's never been presented to them in a way that suddenly it, it, it's the missing piece that they've never understood and they've been acting it out. And, um, and they welcome it. They're not afraid of it. They absolutely welcome it. Well, one is, I think so many times when you have addiction in the family, you feel it's like you're the person who's going crazy. And suddenly when you have a framework to understand why people do all the different things that they do, it's like we're not crazy. Addiction and you know, what happens to the system is what's happening in our family. And right. it's not about us being crazy. It's not about us being bad, us being wrong. Right. And that there's a way out of it
0: yes that there's a way out of that so uh for our listeners out there that might not totally understand what we're talking about you go into um like family roles like you know placator hero uh responsible scapegoat mascot. mascot all of that can can you talk a little bit about how you started to define those roles and put them into that context
1: i actually started putting people in groups according to their age, um, maybe like five to nine, 10 to 13, 14 to 18, et cetera, and older. And you could readily see uh, you had children in the family who became the parent to themselves. They became the parent to the brothers and the sisters, and they typically were your older ones. And while you had somebody who was taking charge in the home as a child, you'd have another child. Um, who was busy taking care of everybody's emotional needs. They'd do anything to take the embarrassment out of the home or the disappointment out of the home. And so it was in these groups that I... I seeing the differences within children within the same family. And you didn't typically see them taking on the same kind of role. And what you realize is it met the needs of stabilizing a family that was highly unstable. It didn't assist the family in getting healthy, but it brought some stability to the family at that given time. And it brought stability to the child. So, you know, I saw these hero responsible children. I saw these placating social work type children. I saw the one who tried to bring relief to the family by being the comic and the distractor. And then you found those who disappeared into the woodwork and I'm not going to be visible. And then you found those really angry kids. And then it just seemed like all those other kids somehow were very similar to all those roles. And so I ended up identifying five different roles. And... And the, and the labels of those roles aren't so important, but with every one of those roles, I saw strengths. And so I talk about that, and it will never happen to me. Um, and the strengths of those roles, such as the responsible child um, knows how to take charge. They know how to lead. The placating child is warm and empathetic. The adjusting child is highly flexible, et cetera. But with every one of those roles, they adhere to them rigidly, and that's the problem. Other people take on roles in families and people to some degree can identify, but they don't adhere to them rigidly because of fear and shame. And in that rigidity, they do not learn a sense of balance. So I may know how to take charge, but I don't know how to follow, which makes me a very poor team member as I move into adulthood. Um, I may know how to uh, follow. I may know how to disappear into the woodwork, but I don't know how to initiate. Um, and I become the procrastinator. If I'm that angry child, I actually know how to lead. I just lead in the wrong direction. So what I did is I really took a look at what didn't they learn. We're not going to take away their strengths, but what don't they learn and how's that going to interfere in your life? And that's what recovery is about, be it for a teenager or an adult child, is what you didn't learn as well as challenging the beliefs along the way.
0: Right. So Let's talk a little bit about how these roles form for, for people, you know, when they're in this family structure and why these roles come to be.
1: So let me just give you examples within my own home, growing up in a home like this. First of all, I had a brother that was terminally ill and he was older than me and that would shift the dynamic. So I was a middle child, but because of having a brother who was terminally ill, I quickly took on a lot of responsibility. I had a father that was very out of control. He he was drinking out of the home daily. My mom couldn't come home from work um, because my dad wouldn't relieve her from the tavern. So I became the parent um, to my brother and my sister. And I did the washing and I helped get the food ready at night. So I sort of became my mother's sort of ally and co-parent in this family. Well, I would have a younger sister who didn't need to do that because I provided that for her. But at times, particularly at times of turmoil, which existed on a daily basis as my dad would sort of come into the houses as a tornado, my sister learned to just move into the woodwork. And she would learn how to almost physically disappear. She would never have any kind of voice. So for me to survive was to be that other parent in the home. For my sister to survive was to go into the woodwork. Now, if it was somebody else's family, maybe there'd be another sibling in the home whose, you know, their head would be spinning with what could they do to just have some sense of stability for themselves. So they would become the comic and they would um, use their humor and cuteness to distract from the pain that was going on in the home or maybe even distract from the scene that is going on in the home. And so everybody finds that there's something they can do to make this in the moment, feel more safe. Right. You no, know, right. part of the problem with all of this is, is that we develop this core beliefs and, you know, for the, uh, beliefs such as it's not okay to ask for help. It's not okay to say no. It's not okay to go outside and play because if I do something bad, it's going to happen inside this house. It's, uh, you know, I'm the one who has to have the answers and they better be right because if they're not right, something bad's gonna happen. So depending on the role, and I'll talk about all this in the book, we tend to have certain beliefs that go along with each of these roles. Now, one of the things that I really appreciate about the really angry kid in the addicted home is they're walking through life saying, there's something wrong in my life and you're gonna darn well notice. And I always say they get noticed by the school teacher and maybe the school counselor and then the probation officer. But they don't get seen as a child who's in a troubled family and where the family is addressed. And unfortunately, they become the identified patient. But they are I always say they're closer to the truth than the others. The others are what I refer to as the looking good kids. They can present to the world a false image that says, I'm doing just fine in spite of.
0: So people may not
1: know what's going on at home. But even if they do, gee, these kids look like they're doing just fine. And in treatment, when I work with the addicted parents, they tell me how well their kids are doing. You know, my daughter's just doing great. She's a straight A student. Well, I can almost guarantee you that straight A student can perform really well, but you do not see herself loathing. You do not see the incredible fear. And that straight A student will often end up imploding in relationships, picking just really painful partners in which to partner with, can ultimately become very depressed. That depression and anxiety may not show until a little bit later in life. Uh, The problems will show themselves. But while they're so busy surviving, you don't tend to see them and they're not being acted out. Oftentimes they don't show themselves till the late 20s and the early 30s. But they will show themselves and they'll permeate that person's life.
0: So these roles become kind of like habituated to living. Like I was rereading your, your book and as I'm reading it just a couple of days ago, I'm like going, oh my gosh, I'm seeing some of these things pop up in my current life still, right? And I I feel like I've done a lot of work, but I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like almost to be reminded again that these kind of stick with you in some ways.
1: And, you know, we talk about with the addicted person, how important recovery is on an ongoing basis, even well into their years and in, in recovery. Or in sobriety. and But I think this is true for the family members and this is true for the adult child. And that's because what happened, and what occurred, was so really severe, even if it's not blatant. For some people, things are more blatant than for others, but it is so chronic. It's taking place at that time in your life when you're developing your worth and your sense of identity. And even with recovery, and I've been in recovery for many years for my adult child issues, but there are times, particularly if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm not maintaining some kind of recovery practice, that I find myself more fearful, more anxious. It doesn't dawn on me I could ask for help when I could use some assistance because, after all, I'm so capable. You know, I can get back into that rigid self-sufficiency, not asking for help. I get back into... Uh, When I say sort of the fear, not being able to stay in the present. Um, So I have to practice. And I think it's healthy for all of us to continue to practice what was helpful to us in early recovery throughout our life. It's it's a wonderful gift.
0: Right, right. I, you know, as as I was listening to your, your book, I love all the examples because you you give really clear examples of, of these different roles. And, and it was so funny because I I had to laugh because I was listening to one and it was, uh. I guess the placater, you know, always saying, sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, gonna, you know, and I'm like, it's so funny, because, you know, I'll, I'll go for a walk. And I go, honey, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go for a walk. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, my gosh, yes. here I am reading it again. I'm like, Oh, I still do that. My wife's like, you don't have to say sorry. I'm like, I can't help it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's so funny.
1: And that's a wonderful example. I mean, it's just that we want to take responsibility for everything and we don't want to get in the way of anybody else's needs and we prioritize their needs still over ours. And here we're in recovery and we're taking care of ourselves, but the guilt is still there. Um, And that gets acted out. I remember a little boy years ago who said, I am sorry to everything. And we actually, I just sort of made up this game and I toss out a situation and he had to say, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. And we would do it with speed and we'd end up laughing um, so hard because he would trip over his words, but it was part about really helping him to get that he wasn't responsible for all other people's behaviors, other people's feelings, other people's needs on a constant basis.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. So as you, you, you lay this out, right, you, you lay out these different uh, roles and rules and of these families. Now, thinking of myself, in adulthood, how do we start to shift this and change this? If we start to recognize it, I guess.
1: I think, one, we really, we need to go back and we always need to be compassionate with ourselves. Whatever we learn to do, that today starts to be problematic for us. We did because it brought us a sense of emotional survivorship. So try not to be judgmental. Try not to be critical of yourself. This is just what you learned, and you, and it, it brought you survivorship. It's uh, It was very helpful to you in the moment. Um, I, I really believe that. But this is how it's interfering. The ability. This is how it's interfering in my life today. Um, is it eroding my esteem? Is it getting in the way of the ability in which to feel good about myself? So a part of what we need to do is identify all the specific things. Do I have a high tolerance for inappropriate behavior? Am I afraid to initiate? Am I always the one to sit back? Um, and uh, do I still feel like I'm on the outside and I don't have a sense of belonging? And it begins by. I I think I do talk in the book about different layers of work. We need to go back and explore that past. Uh, We need to put words to what that experience was. Um, And in that process, we are grieving the past. And there's a lot of loss that has happened for us. And that's the brief work we need to do. But we're also undoing a denial process. We minimize, we discount, we rationalize. So we can do that in a therapy group. We can do it in a self-help group. You can do it through various workbooks. I have a great workbook called Repeat After Me. This is a great way to begin that. You can do it with, it will never happen to me by underlining that which speaks to you, but you need to connect that past to present day. How is that impacting me today? And is it impacting you in relationships in getting into relationships or once you're in there? Is it impacting you as a parent? And, and you get very specific. How does the fact that I lived in a fantasy world as a child as a form of escape impact me in my relationships? How does that impact me as a parent today? How does the fact it was never safe for me to say no as a child or have limits with other people impact me as a parent? And it will impact me in relationships, impact me in my work? How does it impact how I feel about myself? So when I say connect the past to the present, it's a very detailed kind of process. I take a specific issue and I attach it to all these different areas of my life. Is there a belief that's associated to this, that's getting in the way? You know, setting limits with your children. The belief could be that if I say, no, um, I'm not lovable, that I'm not a nice person. So we need to find out what's the belief. And then we need to learn the skill and to practice the skill. And where a lot of people get in trouble is they try and do the skill work without looking at the emotional work or looking at the belief that's associated. Um, I can teach you. I spent two years in a behavioral track. I can teach you how to set limits. I can get you to practice saying no, give you scenarios where you hold your own. You go out into the real world. And if you haven't addressed saying no means I'm a bad person you're not going to set the limit. If you haven't allowed yourself the emotional pain with how unsafe it was to have healthy limits in your family, you will not set those limits. And so it is a process, um, but there are very clear steps in the process, and there's people like you who take people through this process in a safe way.
0: Right. I I was thinking of that too, because this is really hard work to do because it usually brings up a lot of uh, pain when you start to like look at these roles and look at these rules and you start to see this and to kind of walk through it. Yeah. It's usually followed by a lot of pain.
1: There is a lot of pain. And the thing that I ask people is, but look, at I not looking at this? let's talk about the pain that's causing in your life. It's causing distance in relationships, a lack of intimacy. It's causing you not to be the healthy parent that your children need you to be. It's causing you to sabotage relationships in the workplace, et cetera. It's fueling a low, often a low-lying depression, not a major depression, but often just a low-lying depression. It's it's fueling anxiety in various ways. So one, so let's not deny, what's happening as a result of. And the other thing with pain is you can walk through that pain. I mean, I always say the two big resistances to recovery is one, I'd like recovery, but I want it to be pain-free. And two, I prefer to do it by myself. And that I prefer to do it by myself is if you allow other people to be a part of the process, it's easier to walk through that pain. And, you know, I'm one of those people. I don't like people to see me be emotional. I don't like people to see my fear, to see my sadness. And so maybe it begins with one person. Uh, For me, my best therapy has been in a group process. um, And that's so risky for me to be vulnerable in front of a a group of people. And That's the value of self-help groups, I think. And but it's when you allow other people to be a part of that process, they can provide the light and, and provide the hope that's so hard to find for ourselves. And that will get us through the pain. And the pain is just grief. It's just grief. And you know, we have this sort of fear of that if I get in touch with the depth of my pain, I'll end up on the floor, not be able to get up. You know, I, I will scream and never be able to stop. And so we need to put some reality to that. You're probably not going to end up on the floor. You may cry very hard and it may last for 10, 20 minutes, but it dissipates. And if you need the safety of a therapist allow yourself that gift
0: it goes back to that word that you said earlier as we were talking courage you know summoning up that courage that that's probably in you to be able to to reach out for help and that there are trustworthy people out there that will walk with you and you don't have to do it alone but just kind of summon of that courage and go for it
1: and i think that courage comes from somewhere in all of us is a little thread, and some people, for some people that's a bigger thread than others, that we deserve, that we deserve to live our life and and be happier. We deserve to live better than how we feel about ourselves. And we just need to hang on to that little thread and take this little step at a time. But the sooner you allow other people to be a part of the process who understand this, oftentimes other people who've been there, um, the easier it becomes. You know, when I first began going to ACA 12-step meetings, I was already speaking on the road. Um, I was already doing television shows about this. I was already writing about this. And I could give great voice to the experience of children of. But when I went into my own 12-step meetings, I couldn't speak for months because it was about me. Um, I was no longer just being an advocate for somebody else. But I kept going back. I kept going back. um, And I knew that in time, And then and then I did it in baby steps by just starting with, hi, I'm Claudia and I'm an adult child and I'm Claudia and I'm an adult child. I'm grateful to be here. I'm Claudia and I'm an adult child and I find this really scary. And I just took these little baby steps and uh, you can get there. You just got to keep showing up. And again, you are worth it. You deserve it.
0: I, I'm so glad you, you share that personal part of it because I think like a lot of times when we're in our, our shame and we're struggling, you know, we read these, these books by these incredible people like yourself who, you know, have gone through this journey, but that you're human too, and that we're all in this together. And sometimes I think the shame of that kind of comes with this uh, trauma keeps us from thinking that, that everybody else has it all together and somehow we don't, we're the only one. So I'm so happy that you share that, that your journey too was difficult at times and hard and scary and painful.
1: And, you know, we have this sense of being profoundly unique and it's very universal. People's experiences may have some unique aspects to them, but our pain is very universal. And what we do with that pain is usually very universal. And, you know, people today, as I still work with people, you know, um, they're so ashamed of certain parts. They're so sure that things they have done, uh, things they have thought are the worst things that could ever be in the world. And that their story is is so unique. And um, some stories are much harsher than others, but uh, the emotional pain is all the same when i say some stories are more harsher for some people there's been more physical abuse there's been more sexual abuse there may have been you know some homicide in their family story there's you know but you're never to negate your loss because of somebody else's right about the time i think i've heard the most horrific story ever somebody else is going to walk in with a more horrific story but that doesn't negate the person that was just here and yeah. so so again i'm not going to say this because i think it's so important do not negate your history, and your loss. Um, just because there's somebody else that may have something that seems so much more extreme than yours. Yours is still yours.
0: Oh, thank you for saying that. So uh, usually I, l- I, l- I love to ask, as, as we get to the end of the of the interview, what would be we're one... at the end,
1: oh my gosh, we're getting there.
0: I know it goes by it goes by fast. <laughs> I love to ask like what would be one thing you would want to tell anybody out there who's listening to this podcast and maybe struggling, you know, finding recovery or being in a family with addiction, what would you want to tell them?
1: Oh, that there's people out there who are willing to help. You do not deserve to continue to live in this kind of pain. Um, and I don't care if you're you know, if I'm speaking to a 15-year-old or an 84-year-old. Um, there are resources available to you. Awesome. I just want them to know that they're not alone. Just truly not alone.
0: Oh, thank you so much for saying that. So if anybody listening wants more information, how can they find you or where do they go?
1: Okay. Um, one is Claudia uh claudia black.com, claudia black.com um for the book they can find a link to central recovery press at claudia black.com. central recovery press is the uh, publisher they can find the book it will never happen to me on amazon.com but you're looking for the third edition and it will say 30 to third edition on the cover and for anybody who's had the original book i think you love seeing this third edition of the book and for those who are unfamiliar with me or even the t- this title um Again, the third edition is much more expansive. and as I said earlier, unfortunately, what happens in families affected by addiction is pretty much the same 20 years ago, 40 years ago, as it is today. And yet we know so much more about the recovery process. and we know so much we have so many more resources readily available to you today.
0: Awesome, and I will also put all those uh, links in the show notes at the addictedmind.com so you'll be able to get all that there as well. Claudia, it has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you, Delane. It's been great for me too.
0: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at the addictedmind.com forward slash 117. I would definitely encourage you to check out her book. It will never happen to me if you related to this episode. I think it can be very eye-opening and incredibly helpful if you have grown up in a home that uh, had a little dysfunction in it. Also, don't forget, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. It really does help get this podcast a lot of exposure. And I do read those reviews and I really do appreciate all the comments there and take them seriously too. Okay. Please be safe out there, stay safe, and I will talk to you on the next episode.
1: Oh, hey, it's Erin.